The Athletic. Totally Football Show. Today, Polar Vortex hit. It's cold enough for a Yeti year. Here comes Eddie and Ketia and Frank Lampard's looking sweatier. We analyse all of the weekend's big stories with Arsenal winning, City at minus five, but with Paula now unfrozen. West Ham showing grit, but Saints still slipping. Plenty to keep us a chattering in this Totally Football Show. Well, hello there, listener. Thank you for joining us. Uh, Monday, 23rd of January for us here, nestling in the cosy athletic studio alongside Jay Harris. Hi, Jay. Hi, thanks for having me. Not at all. Thanks for coming in. And also John McKenzie. Hello, James. Out of TIFO. Hello. If you're watching on our video stream, by the way, John's the one on the left. <laughs> <laughs> and on the big screen of Zoom, hello, Daniel Story. Good morning, James. Good morning. Daniel, have you warmed up yet? It's actually really cold in this home office. Oh. Uh, so, no, I've got thick socks and slippers on as we speak. Right, because I, I was thinking, because you, you were out at Anfield. and uh, Jay, you went to Ellen Road, didn't you? Yeah, and I was freezing. Yeah. To the point where I spent my Sunday morning trying to find some thermals right. from H&M, Zara, Primark, and they were all sold out. So really, all sold out? So ch- chattering away in the, the stands at Ellen Road. Right. What about you, Daniel? It's the coldest game I've ever been to, I think. Um, Not necessarily in terms of how cold I was, but the wind whipping around Anfield, that sort of real feel was about minus eight, I think. It was was horrendous. Right. Minus 21 for Chelsea and Liverpool, of course, as regards the the title race. eh? (laughs) Uh, That's after Arsenal beat Man United Sunday afternoon at the Emirates. Uh, Let's have a quick romp through the, the headlines from the weekend. That 3-2 win for the Gunners, another big test pass there. But what's this? Man City are back. Man City who beat Spurs 4-2 on Thursday. And Wolves 3-0 this weekend. They are now five points behind the Gunners, although Arsenal have a game in hand. Elsewhere, West Ham beat Everton 2-0 to climb out of the bottom three and possibly end Frank Lampard's reign there. Villa won 1-0 at bottom of the table. Saints, Bournemouth and Forest finished 1-1. Leicester Brighton was 2-2. And there were goalless draws for Liverpool, Chelsea, Leeds, Brentford and Palace and Newcastle. There's now three points separating the entire bottom seven. That's Leicester, Leeds and West Ham, Wolves and Bournemouth, Everton and Saints. Fulham Spurs is Monday night. Woof. Off to the Emirates. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network and sponsored by LiveScore Bet. You can get the latest football betting odds at LiveScoreBet.com. It's over 18s only. Please bet responsibly and be gambleaware.org. Outside of home is Zinchenko. Zinchenko. Oh, the goal! It's in! Little touch on the line from Nketiah. There's more than one inquiry around this. It's a goal. It's a goal. It is a goal. Bang on 90. Eddie Nketiah there with the late winner as Arsenal triumph in a game that many people, Daniel Story, had said was going to be a bit of an acid test as to their title credentials. What do you feel now? Yeah, I do feel like I'm sort of predestined every week Arsenal win to say... That's the test they've passed. Now there's only one more and we'll believe they can win the league until we get to sort of early May. But this was brilliant. It was a brilliant game, firstly. It was it was a wonderful fair to watch. But the kind of irrepressible nature of Arsenal from the Man United equaliser onwards, I thought was massive. It's as if they'd said, yeah, you've had your fun. Thanks for coming. We've just gifted you a goal, but we will be winning this game. Don't worry about that. We will pin you back in. We will make you clear it long like you're a bottom half team and we will we will eventually do you and we'll score. And that confidence is not to be sniffed at because there is huge pressure every game now in Arsenal, particularly against the only team that had beaten them this season in the league. And there was just waves and waves and waves of pressure. And not just waves of pressure because... We see, we see waves of pressure quite a lot. But generally, for example, Leeds had waves and waves of pressure against Brentford early on Sunday, but they made bad decisions doing it. It's the pressure they build up, but also making the right decisions more often than not that's astonishing to me, really. Yeah, this was, this was a battering, wasn't it? 3-2 doesn't look that way, but 
when you actually, I watched the game back and in the first half, I, I felt that Arsenal largely controlled the game. They were put under good pressure by Manchester United out of possession and it meant that they hurried Arsenal and, and Arsenal weren't as fluid as we've seen them. But I was watching with my flatmate and I said to him, in the second half, Manchester United have had, have had to go for this so hard that they, they are going to drop off. And, and we saw that, that slow turn of the screw in the second half as well. But what I found interesting about this game is that it was very much that the, the, the dress rehearsal was done last weekend, right, with Manchester City against Man United. Because Arsenal and Manchester City play very similar styles of football. And what I found so fascinating about that was in the first half of the Man City game, they struggled, obviously, against... Manchester United and then I felt in the second half they made a few tactical decisions and it really helped them out one of those was inverting one of their fullbacks and obviously we'll, we'll probably talk about Alexander Zinchenko and the impact he's had at Arsenal but right. I felt that that approach just really really benefited so they in- inverted Zinchenko that's right yeah so what did that actually mean Yes, and inverting a fullback is a simple thing. You just you, rather than your fullback doing what you would expect for the last couple of decades of fullback to do, which is run down the line, just come inside and help out with with the midfield. Mm. It gives you a little bit of an over, overload in the midfield, so you're adding another player into the midfield mix, so you can start dominating the ball a bit more in the middle. Um, it also does other other things to the off. So, for example, Manchester United play a, a, a three player forward press, um, so that means they have three players who are going to be the first line of the press against a back four, which means they're always going to have, the opposition are always going to have an extra player over. Um, and the idea is that you just sort of shift, this isn't great for, for, for audio, is it? But um, no, no, the, the front three, pictures, yeah, yeah, the front three shift across when the ball's on one side, shift back across to the other. Right. Now, if one of those players drops in, in the inside, it sort of upsets things a little bit and it makes them quite narrow, opens up wide areas to exploit. And uh, the other thing that Manchester United do is they like to man mark in the, in the central midfield areas. And so what we saw a lot of was Zinchenko inverting, so pulling the whoever was on the on the right hand side inwards, creating space on the wide areas, and then Granite Jacker pulling out wide, pulling his uh, marker with him, which was usually I think Scott McTominay, um, maybe Fernandez, I can't remember. Mm. Um, but again, pulling that player out, and you're creating space in the middle. So Manchester United want to overload the middle; they want to make it cloggy in the middle. And what what um, Arsenal were doing with their with their on ball approach was just making as much space, pulling things around in the centre, um, and and that really benefited them, particularly in the second half, because it's very tiring to to man mark in in the central midfield area. Gaps opened up in the second half, and they were just able to to turn the screw. So yeah, really enjoyable game, I thought tactically. Um, but I think I wonder how much of that Arteta got from just watching the Manchester derby the weekend before. Right, and how much as well it might be influenced by the fact that Scott McTominay was in for say Casemiro. How much? That might have changed the game, but that was his own silly fault for getting that card. Of course, how about the goals, Jay? What what quality there? Yeah, I have to start by saying I had the strange experience of watching this game in the Leeds press room. Okay. So um, what happens there is you've got 15 people around you. You're all trying to work. You're all trying to file your your match pieces, and there's just a couple of screens dotted around you. And every now and then, one person, and it was always me, would just go, "Oh, what a goal! Oh, oh, oh my God!" Just reacting to the game. I've obviously gone back and watched it since, and. Earlier in the season, I said Arsenal would be really tested if Jesus or Partey got injured right. and we'd see if they had adequate backup. So the first thing I have to come on here and say is I'm sorry, Eddie and Ketia, because over the last few months, I've doubted if you'd be able to step up to the mantle and you've, you've done it phenomenally. I think that's now four goals in five Premier League starts for yeah. Arsenal since Jesus got injured. And obviously he's come up in those big Trump moments. So obviously he was just doing exactly what a traditional centre-four would do, just getting those scrappy goals. Wan-Bissaka's defending for Nketiah's head is poor, but Nketiah's movement's brilliant. And then Saka's goal is obviously just sensational. There's no way he should be scoring from there, but he's just got such good quality. He just somehow finds that bottom corner. It was an amazing goal. Rashford's opener for United was delicious as well. Yeah, that nutmeg is... um, it's like something I'd see like playing football when I was 10 years old in a street cage. Like, and yeah, you get nutmeg like that and everyone just starts jumping up and down going, oh my God, you just got nutmeg. You know, yeah. you, you, if you're the, the person who gets nutmeg in that scenario, you know, you walk off the cage and you don't return for a month. That was, um, yeah, a pretty special goal. Yeah, but I'm not sure, would you call Nketiah's winner uh, scrappy? Yeah, a little bit. Really? Because, yeah, just because of the way, um, is it Odegaard who kind of takes the shot mm. and it kind of rebounds and, and is kind of leaning back and yeah. may, maybe fortuitous, maybe not scrappy, but All fortuitous. Right. Um, does does uh, Gabriel Jesus get back in this side, Daniel? I don't know. Um, I think it's it's basically fallen by hook or by crook perfectly for Arsenal because Jesus set the tone in early season, which was about... 
you know, everything Arteta has been preaching to these players, which is that the hard work will make the team work, basically. And and the need to press up front, the need for everyone in that attacking line to do it. And Saka and Martinelli do do it brilliantly. So does Martin Odegaard. And just when everyone had sort of got that and everyone was following Jesus' lead, suddenly they bring this poacher into the team who starts scoring. You know, I think Jesus has scored five from 61 shots this season. And then Ketia now has nine from 57. So it, it's kind of fallen perfectly for them. They They do legitimately now have two options. I think if... If Jesus had got injured three weeks ago rather than a couple of months ago, uh, they probably would have tried to buy a striker in January, but now they don't need to do that. Um, they, they, instead, they've been able to buy the, the wide forward that takes the pressure off Martinelli and, and Saka a little bit and everything suddenly falls into place, as it seems to be doing this season. Wow. Remarkable stat. Arsenal had 63 touches in the Man United box in this game. To put that in context, it's the most that any side has had in a... Premier League match this season. United had 12. 12 in the Arsenal box. They had 63. Good Lord. Player with most touches, Jay? Zinchenko. Yeah. Inverted or not. He was the inverted fellow, yeah? Yeah, he was. Yeah, Yeah, and it has been really important to to Arsenal. One of the things I talk about a lot with Arsenal this season is that they're able to problem solve um, Mm. in in every phase of play. So um, Daniel was just talking about how they're really, really good in terms of their off-ball stuff their pressing is is great they pressed super high against Manchester United caused them loads of problems we all know about David De Gea's woes and there was that famous clip of him then shanking the ball straight out of play in in the game as well Uh, but also in in just every phase of build-up they they have different ways of playing so they can play with a flat back four if they want they can keep Zinchenko out wide they can bring him inside they can have um, Ben White sitting as almost like a, an outside centre-back in a three, or they can push him forward and have him inverted as well. And what those, what those different approaches do is it just it allows you to find ways of playing around the opposition's forward press. So if a, a team is pressing with, with two forwards, you might want an overload, so you'll stick Ben White back, so you've got three on two there. Um, we've already talked about the impact they got from inverting the, the full-back as well, but sometimes you'll play against teams who are going to press really high with, with a three, and then you might want a flat-back four because it just gives you more space um, horizontally as well. So what Mikel Arteta has done is that he's, he's just got this team so flexible that when things are happening in-game, he can make changes really quickly mm. um, and, and just, takes, just takes the sting out of what the opposition are doing. You mentioned before that Arsenal and Man City play in very similar fashions. Of course, Arteta learnt at the mm. at the knee of of Pep, but has he added new twists? Does he have a bigger playbook now than his former Oof. master? No, really, because <laughs> no. people do talk about Man City being a little bit inflexible in their approach. I, I think the the critique of Pep is always that he's too oh, flexible, too, right? right. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, I think he's always... Con- the, the, the thing with Pep is that every season he has different things that he can do. So last season, Man City were playing pretty much a different system in, in build-up. Now, they brought in uh, Erling Haaland, which explains why that might be the case. But mm. every season, Pep has new ideas that he brings in at the beginning of the season, and then he sort of workshops them until they, until they work, and then they get knocked out in the Champions League anyway. Um, but I, I was looking through... Um, Understat is a, a, a website. They have what's called an expected points model. And what they do is they take the, the underlying numbers, the mm. scare quotes there, uh, for each game, and they, and they work out the probability of how many points you would, you would get on the basis of your performances. So you can work out... So what they should have got from the games points played so far. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So they, they run Monte Carlo simulation. So they, they say if this game was played 10,000 times, okay. Man City would have got 2.01 points from this game. Right. And you can build a table on that basis and you can match it up against the and actual points. say it's not yeah, I mean, the it's real so, table. It's, yeah, exactly. That's the, the, the real table that everyone who really knows looks at. But, and where, um, where Man City have... I, I looked at it the other day on the, on, on the understat model. You have to go back to 2015-16 before Man City weren't top of that table, um, which is obviously the season before Pep Guardiola arrived. So every season that he's been there, right. in terms of the underlying numbers, right. City have been the best team in the Premier League. And right now? Oh, yeah, they're not. Um, and the only times where, when Man City have not won that is when another team has massively overperformed. Arsenal are, are overperforming their numbers at the moment. Liverpool did when they won the league as well. Right. So Arsenal are at this point where they are on 50 points after 19 games. That's 15 points better off than they were this time last season. Liverpool were here 50 points after 19 games in 2018-2019. Didn't go on to win the title because what happened? Man City, who'd been slumping, came back and boom. John, won't come to you. You did a piece last week saying... Has Erling Haaland ruined Man City? I can't imagine what the comments are like uh, on that. I would point. like to clarify. Right. We'll come back. <laughs> the, the title was, yeah. 
has Erling Haaland made Man City worse? Was it very rather short? Than saying, yeah, well, it, no, it was quite long, actually. Yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> it's a fascinating watch. But uh, Jay, wh- what do you think? Have Man City now reawoken? Yeah, definitely. I mean, obviously what Pep Guardiola said after the 40 victory over Tottenham on mm. Thursday, he was probably a wake-up call for everybody in the league. Just like, you know, don't take Man City for, for granted. This is a, a coach who's really fired up. He wants to, you know, make sure that they win. They'd be the first team to win three titles in a row since Man United back towards the end of the noughties. Before any of us were born, certainly. <laughs> yeah, before before I was born, certainly. <laughs> yeah. um, the second half of the season shaping up to be so interesting. Obviously, we know, as John just mentioned, that Arsenal massively overperforming their numbers. And you feel like at some point, and again, I did say this before the World Cup, and right. I've, been, I've been proven wrong so far, that you just feel like a Arsenal will slump at some point. They right. are going to hit a little bit of traffic. Particularly if they were... A- outperforming those but were you saying that they're outperforming their numbers I mean they are overperforming their numbers but I, I think it's before all the Arsenal fans jump on me um, <laughs> I think most teams who who are going to succeed in in leagues have rich seasons right where they're right. where they things are going their way um, and it feels to, to me this season it feels as though things have gone Arsenal's way more than things have gone Man City's way mm. but again if you look at the underlying numbers Man City are a lot more variable right there's some games where Man City just completely blow away opponents according to the underlying numbers but there's been right. games where they've deserved to lose and they have lost whereas with Arsenal they're much more consistent so they're not blowing a lot of opponents away but they are always doing just enough to sort of deservedly beat teams and right. I think when you play that consistently you you are much better suited to actually have variables go your way. So right. it's worth saying that. I think that there is definitely a play style thing going on here. Arsenal are much more consistent than, than Man City, but Man City sometimes just have games where they just completely wipe the floor with an opponent. Mm. So Or halves, in fact, as, as indeed mm. the uh, second half of that game against Spurs. Daniel, what did you make of, of Man City this weekend, Erling Haaland? His fourth hat-trick of the season. Yeah, and there was a slight revisionism. It, it, it wasn't I read John's piece and, and to be fair the headline slightly did you it wasn't it, no one's saying oh Manchester City are worse now they have Erling Haaland I think what we're saying is that there are games that when that because Haaland is so dominant and has scored so many goals that maybe subconsciously players around him assume that that's going to continue every game and that when they do struggle to service him everything can break down a little bit and and I think that's still valid the reality is he's scoring so many goals at such a rate that it might not matter. I went back and looked at Mohamed Salah's season where he scored 32 league goals as kind of the modern day baseline of goal scoring greatness. And in that season, I think he was scoring about one in every four of his shots. Haaland scoring more than every one in three of his shots at the moment, which is such a jump up that if that continues, they will win pretty much every game between now and the end of the season. The, the problem for City is that as John says, there is a, a wide variety in their best and worst performances. And if one of those worst performances comes in either of the games against Arsenal, they will lose that game and then they will really, really struggle to win the league because I don't see Arsenal how they're playing dropping 8, 9, 10, 11 points for the rest of the season. Just um, quickly on that point, what you're mentioning about how Haaland's so dominant so when they can't really get to the ball to him they struggle that's exactly what Thomas Frank kind of said after Brentford beat Man City at the Etihad they said that we didn't really focus on actually marking Haaland out of the game we focused on just making sure that we disrupted De Bruyne as much as possible so you couldn't even get the service into him in the first place so it's obviously a template teams would look to um, replicate but obviously it's much harder to actually do it in person but that kind of speaks to what happens sometimes whereas last year when they had a little bit more fluidity with someone you know being the false nine and people constantly switching positions you don't really get that with Haaland so um, I guess that's what it kind of links to yeah what you do get is goals though in each of the last four Premier League seasons he would already <coughs> have won the golden boot which is insane no? and in, what 20 games in for Man City he scored 25 Premier League goals that would have earned him the uh, top scorer title already. And am I right in thinking he's got more Premier League hat-tricks than Cristiano Ronaldo? Uh, yeah, but I don't know. I know that the yes. record is yes. Yes, Ronaldo only ever got three yeah. um, okay. and in total. And Shearer's record is five in a season. And right. Haaland's obviously on four now for four. the season. Yeah. Got one goal last Thursday. Daniel, this came I mean, obviously a while ago, but it wasn't our last show. What was it? Was it the indignity of going two goals down to Spurs that finally reawakened Man City's pride? Yeah, I think so. When Spurs' second goal went in, there were Manchester City fans in front of the press box, and we should say they are the, the padded seats, um, who booed, <laughs> booed the players and booed Guardiola. And Guardiola was sort of stopped in his tracks and just looked at them as if to say, like, 
are you joking here? Um, we need you more than this. And he then went on to detail exactly that after the game. The frustrating thing with watching City is it seems that when they're trying to build confidence, they play these like slow passes that generally end up out at a left-back, wherever that left-back is positioned. But they're so good at passing quickly that passing quickly is actually safer for them than passing slowly. Because if they pass slowly, then teams pressure them and they sometimes lose the ball and make bad decisions and then they get countered. If they pass quickly like they did in the second half, nobody can cope with them if it works. And I, I suspect that's what Guardiola said to them at half time. Like, what? Let's just play quickly here. The silly thing is, it, it took until they were 2 0 down in a kind of emergency situation for them to try and do that. Um, that's what they need to start doing from minute one to minute 90, not from whatever minute they fall a goal or two goals down to start doing. Fair. John, I know you want to mention another City player, Rico Lewis. Has he made them worse as well? Uh, Rico Lewis is another one of our inverted fullback friends. No. Yes. Although, interestingly, with Rico Lewis, I mean, Rico Lewis is an incredible young player. He's 18 years old. He's been dumped into the Man City starting 11 in a period where they are slumping, however we look at it, certainly results wise. And he's just. Well, they were. Yeah, sure. Mm. And, and he's, yeah, he's, he's just been absolutely fantastic. Um, but rather than like a, an inverted fullback, it's almost like he's a central midfielder who can. And I had to look up the word for what the opposite of inverted is, evert. So he's like an everted centre midfielder. He drops out into a fullback position. Um, so there you go. But he, yeah, really, really fantastic. So wait, 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 wait. So if you invert, you kind of reverse your natural. <laughs> inverting is going go... inside, right? Yeah. And everting is like if you, going if you, the other way. If you do the opposite of inverting, you just don't do anything, surely. No, he's a central midfielder who's dropping out rather than a fullback who's pushing in, if that makes sense. I'm okay. learning so much this morning. Yeah, me too. John, apart from the fact that he everts, what can I? What does he do? What can I look out for in a Rico Lewis performance? Yes, so he's really neat and tidy in possession. He's quite a small chap. Um, you might not expect him to be dominating midfields as he is, but yeah, really, really neat and tidy. Picks the ball up, can help in the build up. He is able to get forward as well, so you'll, you'll often see him sort of pushing into the spaces where you might see Kevin De Bruyne as well, and just really is helping them in progressing the ball from from those deeper build ups into into the final third as well. Um, just a super fun. Fun little player. He's uh, from Berry, which is where my mum's family are from as well. So I think maybe I have a little bit of a, a soft spot for him off the back of that as nice. well. Nice. You're a Rico Lewis fan, Daniel? Yes, massively. He, he is one of those players, and City seem to produce them probably more than any club in the world at the moment. Um, sort of like the old school Barcelona model where you see a player and you if you didn't know anything about him, you'd assume he was 26 years old and he happens to be 18 years old and looks like he's played 300 games. Right. Um, Is it because of the hairline like Iniesta? Is it that? <laughs> it's, it's because he, he seems to be the one, even when you watch him play, he seems to be the one calling out to other players to yeah. say, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this, you stay there. He was sort of t telling Riyad Mahrez, you stay high up the pitch and I'll kind of cover both positions. Inc incredibly mature and just another one on that kind of England pathway of right backs that you know there's a heck of a queue but he's nudging himself up there already the thing with him as well is he looks like he's like lab bred by Pep Guardiola to play that role <laughs> right he's just the perfect player that you would put in there and, and I think it, that's the the interesting thing we talked about Zinchenko he's made a huge difference to Arsenal Manchester City sold Zinchenko and they they've just popped this 18 year old kid in and he's doing a grand job for them there as well so it just it's impressive from that point of view as well which but, would you rather have if you were building a team right now with unlimited state funds <laughs> Lewis or Zinchenko I'd take Lewis yeah Daniel yeah, for the age. I mean, oh, right. age aside. I mean, in but terms of what Arsenal one need... one shot for the title. Well, both clubs, yeah. and this is because Manchester City are very clever, have got exactly what they need. Arsenal needed a player for the now. City needed a right-back for the future. Okay. And they've both got what they need. Mm. They play each other next Friday, you know, Arsenal and Man City, in the cup. Mm, I shall be there. Are yes. you going along? Yeah, I'm going along. I'm doing a, a Friday night, Monday night FA Cup double, which is unusual for me. Wow. Yes. Where, where is it? Is it, uh, is it Emirates? It's at or City. It's at City. It's at City. All right. Mm. Crikey. There you go then. Five points for now. The gap. Arsenal with a game in hand. But uh, the giant is stirring just behind them. Next up, we'll address a big game down the other end. This is the Totally Football Show, sponsored by LiveScore Bet. With BetBuilder from LiveScoreBet, you can combine markets from thousands of options to create your own bet on the biggest football fixtures in the Premier League, the Champions League, the EFL and around the world. 
So if you think you can successfully pick the first goal scorer, the final score, the total number of corners, and whether there'll be a red card, then use BetBuilder from LiveScoreBet to make up to six selections and get a single bet with the combined odds. Or if you can't make up your mind, you can choose from the pre-built quick bet options. BetBuilder from LiveScoreBet. Building a bet just got easier. Find out more at LiveScoreBet.com or by downloading the LiveScoreBet app on Android and iPhone. It's over 18s only. Full account terms apply. And of course, please bet responsibly and be gambleaware.org. Arsenal fans, fancy reliving that unforgettable win over Manchester United? Of course you do. Handbrake Off, the Athletics' dedicated Arsenal podcast, is the place to listen. Join Amy Lawrence, Michael Cox and myself, Adrian Clark, to talk sublime Saka, 50 points, Arteta, the win monster, and so much more. Just search for Handbrake Off on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. And Antonio gets in ahead of Tarkovsky, and he's away from Tarkovsky. It's Bowen. It's two now for West Ham. Determination. Seeing West Ham over the line there. Yes, indeed. West Ham 2, Everton 0 Saturday afternoon. West Ham winning El Sakico. Is that a thing? Who came up with that? We need to have a, an amnesty on no more of those echoes yeah. now. Fair enough, then. That was their first victory in eight Premier League games. Since I mentioned it, Colin Miller with a fascinating stat. West Ham, one win in eight Premier League games. It was against Everton. Southampton, one win in nine Premier League games against Everton. Bournemouth only had one win in 11 Premier League games. 11. <laughs> that was against? Everton. Correct. Mundo. Wolves, two wins in nine Premier League games. One was against Everton. Leicester, yeah, two wins in eight. One was against Everton. Crikey. No wonder, Jay, that stories are that it might have, um, it might have finally come to the end for Frank Lampard. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of what we're seeing on social media at the moment. So by the time this has reached your ears, mm. Frank Lampard might already be gone. Um, it's obviously a really tricky situation because there's so much anger from the Everton supporters towards the board at the moment. And you can't hide from the fact that their managerial decisions, their recruitment decisions stretching back over five, six, seven, eight years have, have really been poor. Um, but then you can't deny the fact that they're not a particularly good team on the pitch either. Um, I know that they've not really... Well, they've not really done anything in this January transfer window yet. As I'm not too sure if Arna Danjuma's gone through, but I know they were trying to get him on, right. on loan. Um, but even if you go back to the summer, they bought in Dwight McNeil and he's not really made an impact. I think Onana's been pretty decent. Um, Morpé obviously came in as well when he's not really done anything. So Lampard has been given the funds back in the summer to try and improve this team. And I just think they don't look particularly good. Defensively, I think they're woeful. Um, so you can say that Lampard's had a little bit of a bad hand just because he's kind of walked into a situation that was always very toxic already. But I don't think he's necessarily got the best that he could have out of that squad regardless. Mm. He has had 38 games in charge and they are worse off than when he came in. I think there was 16th when he, he took over. Obviously, a lot of other issues. Anger, as you say, towards the board. Let's talk about West Ham, though, and uh, what was, as, as I mentioned, their, their first win in, in eight. And Jared Bowen, his first goal since the 13th of October. Woof. What, what was behind this sudden reflowering? I don't know. West Ham are a funny one, aren't they? Because you look at the squad on paper, as they say, and they've got some good players in there. And... Obviously, in the last few seasons under um, David Moyes, people have been expecting to make the jump up to becoming a, a sort of solid uh, European challenge, challenging team. And that hasn't happened. Um, so West Ham, we, you talked about El Sakiko before, but West Ham versus Everton, it felt as though 
there's there's something to be gained by keeping David David Moyes <laughs> David Moyes um, <laughs> back to his, his Spanish days David Moyes. Um, <laughs> there's there's something to be gained by keeping him him in the position. Whereas I think with with Everton it's very much a case of like nothing lost, nothing gained if they if they sack him because as things stand they Everton are going down under Lampard. So it you know you you might as well. Uh, twist the the cards and and see what happens. Um, West Ham, I think, have a good enough set of players that you would expect them to to sort of turn this around eventually. Um, and it seems as though that's kind of what's happening now. Actually, the underlying numbers. I know I say that phrase a lot, but the underlying numbers are quite um, good for for West for, for Ham. West Ham, are they? Yeah, they're a mid-table side according to the underlying numbers. So wh- been a wh- bit where's the discrepancy? Is it in scoring goals? Uh, yeah, I think that goal scoring has has been a problem for them. Um, West Ham are a, t- a team that I think like David Moyes sets them up very solidly and the big question I think about them making that step up was whether or not they could possess the ball for longer mm. um, and because they've always been quite a direct attacking team right they've had really um, good direct attacking players Jared Bowen being one of them uh, but players like Mikhail Antonio as well Ben Rama on the other side um, and it, that's great when you're an underdog because you can play in these sort of quite expansive ways where you sit sit a bit deeper, absorb pressure, and then try and hit teams on the break. Um, but when you're looking to to maybe maintain possession a little bit more, you need to have better structures of play, and they just haven't managed to do that under under Moyes. And I think what's happened at the beginning of this season is that where they were able to attack with these fairly direct ways, they've not. It's just not been coming off for them. So um, I think it's mainly to do with talent. They they have that talent there compared to a lot of the other teams around them, and. Uh, I, yeah, I think eventually it will probably come good enough for them. But the big question is going to be, do they want to make that, that step up to become a, a solid sort of European challenging side? Mm, oh, I imagine they do. They, they move out of the bottom three, one point clear of the drop as it stands. Jared Bowen uh, with a brace and also announcing this week that he's expecting twins with his partner, who's Danny Dyer, which confused yeah. me, but it's... <laughs> Danny not... Dyer's daughter, Danny, Danny Dyer. Dyer. Danny with an I, yeah. Daughter, Danny Dyer. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That must be I, weird. I, I think um, I think Sean Dyche probably keeps Everton up. I have to say, I think they're, they're, that club is completely broken, definitely, uh, because there's this kind of ominous silence between every stakeholder, which is just dragging everything further down. But I, I look at that first team, maybe not the squad, but I look at that first team, and I think I can't imagine a centre back pairing in the Premier League that Dyche would like more than Tarkovsky and Cody. And Pickford is a brilliant goalkeeper. He's the best goalkeeper outside the top six in my opinion maybe other than and David David Rea he's got Dwight McNeil who he, he knows from Burnley he's got options on the other side for either Anthony Gordon or Damari Gray and he's got Dominic Calvert-Lewin who's just kind of begging for service at the moment the centre midfield is a little bit of a worry but Adrissa Gay is a worker if he can turn that central midfield workman like I think Dice can keep this team up I think there's enough there I think how bad the situation is off the pitch is kind of slightly unduly overshadowed the the potential competence in that first team and I know that potential competence sounds like incredible damnation with faint praise but XC yeah but like comp (laughs) but but faint competence is enough to keep teams up in the Premier League this season I think so Mm. do it and I think yeah I think if they if they attract Aish then I think he can keep them up if they go for a kind of alternative name I don't think that they will well, what are the other names touted? Wayne Rooney's one. And Postacoglu is out of contract. Okay. I think it's Celtic this summer. He would be a, a kind of progressive appointment. But I just, yeah, I think those f- appointments feel like I need a pre-season, whereas Sean Dyche doesn't feel like an I need a pre-season mm. manager. It's worth saying, I think Andrew Postacoglu is on a rolling contract so I think the expectation is that he renews every year. But yeah, he would be available, I guess. But it's, it's the question is like how... Who's going to take that job? It's just a it's a poison chalice. It does have diet written all over it. Now, now Daniel planted <laughs> do you think, it. Do you think? But do you think he would? Do you think he would take yeah, it? I think his first press conference. I think he'd be like rubbing his hands <laughs> with glee. I think he'd be flexing. I you think thought he'd be had, like, you thought you'd seen the end. Of the <laughs> <laughs> I think he'd be all over that. They are only, as I say, two points from safety. So, yeah. All righty. Uh, that's the situation there. West Ham moving out of the bottom three. Bournemouth drop into it after their one-one draw with Nottingham Forest. Uh, Forrest, Daniel, who should have more in this game? What, what was the? What yeah, was they played. They played pretty badly. It Did was they? not a brilliant game. Bournemouth have got an issue whereby they really cannot afford to try and sit on leads. Their their man Leicester have both got this really annoying habit of getting a lead by playing really 
far better than we're used to and then suddenly just reverting to type and acting surprised when central defenders look really panicky and Leicester did it this weekend with with Amati and, and Wootfeis and and Bournemouth certainly didn't because they just invite pressure that they they have repeatedly proven that they can't deal with so it just becomes a bit of a fool's errand mm. all right next up for Forest you've got Carabao Cup semi-final first leg this week yeah Man United the city ground for to see yeah Manchester United uh Really, it's fallen nicely for Forest because they've obviously got these two unexpected League Cup games but are out of the FA Cup, so they do get the weekend off. So I think that means they can go full pelt at it, which is great. OK. The other semi-final, we'll see Southampton, who you will recall knocked out Man City in the quarterfinals. Man City. Hmm. Uh, they will be taking on Newcastle on Tuesday. When are the second legs, Daniel? Is that next week? You're saying yes, next, next week. Tuesday, Wednesday, right, yeah. Okay. Hey, speaking of Southampton, after that little revival, they had another home defeat this weekend. Saturday afternoon, they were beaten 1-0 by Aston Villa. Dan, Villa fan Dan, sounds familiar. But anyway, uh, Dan says, let's have some love for you, Unai Emery and Aston Villa this week. They picked up 16 points out of 21 or something. It's a 16-21. I think that, yeah, anyway, they picked up lots of points, says Dan, against Man United, Liverpool, Spurs and Brighton. Can we be good rather than everyone else be bad? Daniel, Villa good? Bubakar, Kamara and Douglas Louise as a combination equals good, I think, is what it is. I'm not saying Steven Gerrard would still be in a job because he was making loads of other mistakes, but uh, he didn't have Kamara for these last four games and Villa didn't win any of them. Uh, he's a phenomenal midfielder, but he also lets Douglas Louise go forward, um, which with the ball means that Douglas Louise can can pass progressively. He's created more chances than any other Villa player this season. But also it means he loves a tackle. So they've kind of got these, rather than the two next to each other tackle, they've got like two layers of midfield tackling, which is just means they're winning the ball higher up the pitch and it makes everyone look a little bit more energetic. And that's down to Emery getting the best out of them, but it's also just about them both being available. Brilliant. I think that's probably, other than maybe Alexis and Caicedo, it's probably the best central midfield pairing outside the big six. Okay. I think. Very nice. Uh, next up, let's talk about some of the exciting nil-nils that this weekend gave us and other things too. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. You're listening to the Totally Football Show with James Richardson, sponsored by LifeScore Bet. 
You can get the latest football betting odds at livescorebet.com. It's over 18s only. Please bet responsibly and be gambleaware.org. Listener, if you're knocking around on Tuesday with nothing to put between your ears, then how about a fat slice of Totally Football Show European edition? It's going to be a big one this time around as well. Got the Bundesliga back after two months off. And they only came back with the highest scoring match day of the season. Wow. We'll hear about all of that with Raphael Honigstein. There'll be French talk, Spanish talk, and maybe a soupçon of Syria as well. After the news on Friday of Juve's points deduction, uh, we were aware that there was the possibility of a points deduction because of their practice of inflating player transfer figures and the way that that's possibly enabled them to perform at a higher level economically than they should actually have been able to do and falsified as a result the outcome of of, of the championship. Uh, And the prosecutor had asked for nine points, which seemed a lot, but (laughs) the uh, verdict came back with 15 points of deduction for Juventus, which dropped them immediately from third in the Champions League places all the way down to 10th. Now, they they, they clawed one point back on Sunday night uh, when they had an enthralling 3-3 draw with, with Atalanta, who have really returned to form of late, but still a massive blow for them after that stirring comeback that they made from their really bad start to the season on, on, on the field. They are going to appeal it, then there'll be a month before we get the decision on the appeal, so within two months we should know if this stands or not, the 15-point uh, deduction. I have to say, though, there is every chance that it could get even worse for Juve because uh, after this inquiry, there's another one about payments made off the books. And then there's also a criminal inquiry going on because they're a publicly quoted club. And if they haven't been upfront with their bookkeeping, then that becomes a criminal offence. And it's actually the evidence from that criminal inquiry which brought about this 15-point penalty because this was part of a, an, uh, an inquest which involved, I think, seven different clubs. And they were, including Juventus, they were all basically absolved back in uh, the spring of last year. But the prosecutor, when they got this latest set of evidence from the Prisma inquiries, it's called the criminal one, which includes wiretaps in which Juve's directors pretty much openly discuss the fact that they're cooking the books. Uh, that's why they went back and reopened the, the Juve part of it. So that's why they're the only club that's been done for this. But there's all those potential issues down the line as well. And also, even if they do manage to fight their way back into the European positions, what are UEFA going to say in terms of A, F, F, P and B, you know, are they now no longer eligible to play in cups because of bad faith, etc., etc.? Crikey, anyway, well, that's about half an hour on Juve from me, but there'll be more of that kind of thing, along with loads of other slightly less dry issues in Tuesday's Totally Football Show. Hmm. Oh, also out on Monday is the Athletic Women's Football Podcast. Yeah, I imagine that frozen pitches is going to be a big talking point in that. Chelsea-Liverpool, the big Sunday lunchtime game, abandoned after six minutes after players spent kind of five and a half minutes of that just sliding around on the, on the turf at Kingsmeadow. It was uh, mm. farcical. A lot of questions being asked about why that went ahead. And I'm sure there will be in the Athletic Women's Football Podcast, which is probably out right now. Liverpool-Chelsea in the men's game went ahead. And Daniel, you were there Saturday lunchtime. That's their fifth straight draw. Nil-nil it finished. Yeah, I mean, the, the WSL game got a lot of criticism, but I'd be surprised if there was less action in those six minutes than there was in the 90th at Anfield <laughs> in the same corresponding fixture in the men's Premier League. It was a, a really bad, bad game. You say that. There was that huge, exciting early Chelsea goal, which could have sparked an entirely different kind of narrative had our friends yeah. with the VAR machines not stepped in. And boy, did we spend the two hours in the car on the way home wishing it had been given. Yeah. Right. Um, I mean, it felt like it, it. I know technically, technically Havertz was offside, but it was a weird thing to see a player who's onside kick the ball and the player who's behind him, further away from goal, is offside, which was Havertz. But because of... I, I wasn't sure why he wasn't... It wasn't a new phase of play when the ball came I have no screens at Anfield that I could see and I was glad of it because I'm tired of guessing offside decisions wrong no. as I have done I think on each of the last three weekends um, yeah I mean it, Chelsea were the better team and given that they are uh, effectively a, a merry band of new attacking midfield signings at the moment that's probably a good thing um, what they lack is the clinical striker so it's good job they've bought Mudrich and Noni Madweke and Christopher Nkunku on the way, none of which are centre-forwards. But, yeah. but he, looked, he looked lively off the bench, didn't he, Mudrich? 
No? Yes, he did. He did. Yes. He he looked quite raw, which I think is what we expect. He looked very fast, which I think we expect. There was a moment where he ran, started about five yards behind James Milner to get to a ball. And even as soon as the run started, you thought James Milner is going to bring him down for a yellow card here. And that's exactly what happened. Liverpool just look... look it, we talk about the midfield and, and that's clearly a, a problem, but Mohamed Salah hasn't had a shot on target for three games. They look so panicky at the back. And it, it does feel like the problems start in midfield and are kind of spreading like a bit of a disease to the rest of the team. So no one's got any confidence in anything. Even Alisson now under pressure on the ball seems to be panicking a little bit with his kicking. It's It was a really bad watch. And the supporters, as an old guy, passed the press box after about 82 minutes and the steward sort of said, oh, it's too cold, isn't it? You're leaving. And he was like... Yeah, I'm absolutely fine for temperature. It's just I'm leaving. It's really not very enjoyable. I want to get home. Uh, so, yeah, it right. was. I, I kind of went thinking I chose this game over Arsenal Man United, which was a wretched decision because I kind of saw it as this kind of misery derby where defeat for one of them would end in, you know, the clangs of crisis, completely disregarding the fact that the game could finish nil-nil and that everyone would just kind of knock it down the park for a couple of weeks, which is what happened. OK, knock down the park for a couple of weeks. Liverpool still yet to win in the Premier League in 2023. Here's a stat from Duncan Alexander. More than a quarter of all of Liverpool's goals in the Premier League this season came against Bournemouth in August. Oh, wow. Wow. You saw Liverpool, didn't you, recently against... Uh, Brentford. Yeah, that 3-1 win for the Bees. I thought Brentford were... They were good in that game. I didn't think Liverpool were, were terrible. What no. I, my The main takeaway from a Liverpool perspective I took from that game was that I actually think Nunez will come good eventually. I think he makes all the right runs. I think his movement's pretty good. He's very quick. Um, he's his just, underlying numbers, essentially. His underlying numbers are hitting. cracking. Um, <laughs> it's just his decision-making is still pretty dreadful and I think there was a moment on um on Saturday towards the end of the game when he came off the bench where I think he had I don't know if I think Gakpo still might have been on the pitch at this point but Nunez was kind of running down the left and Thiago Silva was trying to usher him onto his left I think had Nunez just looked up and seen Gakpo and Salah were, were towards the right and made that pass instead then Liverpool would have had a better opportunity but Nunez was just so focused and determined on getting a shot away he gets a shot away right and I think he, I think it goes wide. It was just from a, it was from a silly angle, and he's just made too many mistakes like that. But you got to remember, he's still only twenty, I think twenty three years old, just right. turned twenty three years old. Um, how many strikers at the age of twenty three are complete, other than Holland? And the scary thing with Holland is that obviously he might even still get better. Um, I think give it a year or two, and Nunez will will really be firing. Okay. On the subject of Mudrick, by the way, is it is it fair to say Chelsea should have bought a centre forward, or, or you know, given that there are teams who have this who have this kind of merry band of kind of fluid, fast-moving. Just when Mudrit attacked the box with his two feet like that, and it, it, when he, he went close to, to scoring, it made you think, I don't know if he needs a man to, yeah, to target. I think, I think that what Chelsea have been lacking at the beginning of the season is a really dynamic front line, really. They've had, they've had Pulisic on one side and Sterling on the other with Havertz through the middle. Now they've got the option of Mudrick. Uh, Joao Felix and and Havertz oh, yeah, as well. Joao Felix as well. So I think you <laughs> and Madueke. Yeah, I think they've gone from having a really problematic front three to actually having one of the most exciting front threes in the league. So I think that will benefit them um, in terms of like whether or not they start a striker versus a a falser niner kind of guy. Um, we've spent the whole time this season talking about how are Man City like worse with, with Haaland they're not worse but they're certainly different um, Manchester City have been very successful playing a falser nine than uh, in, in the past so I don't see why Chelsea can't do the same thing with Joao Felix in okay. that position and then and then Mudrick just getting him behind and, and being super dynamic which is what he did against against Liverpool I thought he picks the ball up from deep positions can go round players either way uh, he can he I mean we saw him as you say that he, he just ghosted into the box was unlucky to not hit the target um, but he just offers lots of problems to, to fullbacks and he will do for the rest of the season and I think that's kind of what Chelsea need at the moment because they're struggling to progress the ball in the sort of patient way that maybe Graham Potter wants but then they mm. don't have that outlet where they can you're not going to kick it long because you've got Raheem Sterling or Pulisic in, in the wide areas in the first half of the season um, now you've got someone like Mudrick who can pick the ball up from deeper and just stretch teams just from the, the halfway line onwards it'll just it just gives them another thing from uh, from that sort of position I think so. as, as Matt Davis-Adams was mentioning on Thursday as well they, they have the weekend off they're not in the cup anymore 
So they won't be playing until early February. So a bit of time for Graham Potter to try and make all that click together. Anyway, goalless for you at Anfield, Daniel. Goalless for you, Jay, at Ellen Road in the clash between Leeds and Brentford. A, uh, a history-making game, this. Was it a history-making game? It was the first time ever in the Premier League that Brentford have had a game oh. and not had a shot on target. <laughs> yeah, I mean... Why was that? They just didn't play particularly well going forward. Um, but I think the key context here is that Thomas Frank, and he spoke about it in his post-match interviews and he mentioned it in the press conference, um, Brentford have not got the greatest record away from home. And they got absolutely battered by Newcastle at St. James's Park. Um, they got absolutely battered by Aston Villa at Villa Park. When they went to the city ground, they conceded a really late equaliser. They've not got a great record of going to what you'd say are traditional, noisy, atmospheric stadiums and kind of being able to, to cope with the pressure. So Thomas Frank basically said, if we're not playing particularly well at one of these grounds, just do the basics, just keep it tight at the back and keep a clean sheet and take a point and, and move on to the next one. So it wasn't particularly thrilling going forward. I think the closest they came to even scoring a goal was when Ivan Tony spotted Melia was off his line and he tried a bit of a cheeky attempt and it hit the side netting. Um, but otherwise, they didn't really offer anything. Um, but they're on 30 points after 20 games. They're above Liverpool and Chelsea in the league. So obviously, <laughs> you've got some Brentford fans who are like, you know, Leeds... I think you've given up the most big big chances in the league this season. Um, they're vulnerable at the back. We, we could have really gone for them and got the win. But actually, you're in a fantastic position. Enham Road's never an easy place to go to. Take the point, move on mm. and be happy. John, you're a Leeds fan. What was your take on this game? Leeds are in a funny place this season. They've, mm. they've brought in a manager who they saw as having this upside of being a really intense pressing coach and... Uh, the idea was, I think, that he was going to be a sort of high floor, low ceiling manager. He was going to give them a solid footing to be able to beat the teams around uh, the bottom of the of the league and, and keep Leeds up quite comfortably. And in the event, it sort of transpired that Leeds were actually causing problems to the teams at the top of the table, but not the teams around them. And I think a lot of that's to do with the fact that in the Premier League, there's so much money in the league that no one wants to get knocked out of the, the league. So there's teams at the bottom of the table who will just happily sit deep against you uh, and stop you from being able to transition quickly, which is what Leeds like to do and they're also not going to engage your press they'll just play over the top of your press so this season has been a story of sort of finding that out and then realizing that that Leeds are in a bit of a crash course for relegation if they're not careful to now sort of reducing the amount of intensity in the high press and losing sort of half of their upside so this was I think a game which which sort of testified to that Leeds were, were not wanting to lose this game so sat deeper didn't press as high again if you look at some of the underlying numbers the pressing intensity has dropped a lot for Leeds in the last few games so it seems as though they're trying to do something different but that then raises the question of you now got a coach whose upside is high intensity pressing high up the field and you're not doing that so where's where's everything gone so it's been a weird season for for Leeds fans I think, I think. one of my main takeaways from the game from a Leeds perspective was how reliant you've become on Willie Nonto already yeah. um, and he's he's what, is he just turned 19 yeah. a couple of months ago and it just felt like there were times in a game where it was like I'll oh, just give the ball to Nonto and just see if he can kind of dribble past a few players um, and also just how often Rodrigo got in the ball in almost like a playmaker-esque role whereas he's not that kind of player so it's like why is he kind of getting that many touches of the ball in those kind of areas when he's maybe not the person to best take advantage of that Daniel yeah watching Leeds with Nonto it, it felt like watching bad Newcastle when they had Alan Maximan <laughs> and it was kind of okay for us to create a clear-cut chance one player is going to have to probably beat three opposition players yeah just to create a decent chance and Leeds had had all the ball one thing that really disappoints me about this season is how the players who I thought would kick on, like Brendan Aronson, have really declined pretty badly. And the whole thing, I, I, I watched these on the opening day and Aronson was the best player and he got this massive standing ovation when he came off after 80-odd minutes and they were beating Wolves. But it just looks like he's bit, been a bit broken by the experience. And I thought the benefit of Marsh was that with the players they'd signed, clearly within that kind of same model, these would be the players that kicked on, whereas the others would, you know, the, the ones he inherited would maybe drop off. But it's still... Luke Ayling, who's kind of driving the mood. It's still Melier who's having to make saves, albeit not yesterday. And yeah, it's these new players who have come from completely outside that model who are now leading the team for chance creation. It's it's a very strange one. Getting Bamford back will be massive. They play Forest in the next league game and Bamford will obviously be eyeing to start <laughs> that game as an ex-Forest player. So maybe that's a chance. And uh, exactly the same as against Everton. 
you don't need to be brilliant to stay up this season. What you need is a, a three or four game run of of competence that you get what you deserve. Mm. Well, in terms of underlying numbers, uh, they are lying under uh, Leicester in 15th uh, leads. Only one point from the drop. Are you worried, John? I think that we've got clearly like the talent advantage to, to be fair, slightly similar to West Ham. But, okay. um, we, we're currently on a quite nice run of easier fixtures uh, that I think if we don't come out with anything there, it's going to make the rest of the season quite difficult. Mm. Um, so I think, I think it'll be enough because the, the table is so tight, but it's like, it's, it's risky, right? It certainly is. That's what makes it so exciting. Uh, Leicester, I mean, time picked up a point against Brighton. Ooh, just talk about uh, Mitoma's goal. Woof, Mitoma's goal. Goal of the weekend? Yes, by the my favourite player to watch in the Premier League. Why, this why is that, Daniel? Way. Because he just, if you created a graph and along one axis you had like how much you, when you watch them, you just want that team to give the player the ball. And on the other axis, you've got when that player gets the ball, how often he does something that makes you smile or laugh or yelp when he does it. Matoma would be jammed into that top right-hand corner because he just loves driving at players. He, he, may, he, he genuinely humiliated Tent Alexander-Arnold last weekend in a way that more than any other time I've really worried about Alexander-Arnold as a, as a right-back. And he's in that stage now where, exactly the same as Saka on the other side, opposition players and managers know exactly what he's going to do and yet they still can't stop it. It's a kind of Iron Robin. He's sort of, yeah, he's like a sort of reverse Iron Robin in that you know what he's going to do and yet he, he, there's nothing you can do about it because he's, he's so good at doing it. And he cost two and a half million from Kawasaki Frontale, which is, again, Brighton's recruitment model coming to the fore. Worth saying that the way that De Zerbi's team are playing at the moment really suits his play style as well. So a lot of that is about deep, patient build-up, pulling the opposition forward, creating space in behind for a player to run into. And he saw a lovely video about that. Did you? I can't think where. Studs on the ball. Studs on the ball, yeah. Look lackadaisical. Draw them in. Jump as a goalpost. And then (laughs) Evert. Eva, yeah, you got that. Yeah, and then Eva. <laughs> uh, speaking of Brighton's recruitment, how about M. Ferguson? 18 years old, three goals and two assists in five Premier League appearances, got on the score sheet here, as well as Brighton snatched a point uh, from this game. Possibly should have had more because did they not have a massive penalty shot? Yeah, I had a pen- penalty shot, which should have been a penalty, mm. and then you had Solly Marsh. Um, yeah. What's brilliant with that is that even before Marsh's. Marsh's body is still moving. He's already kind of like turning around to kind of blame the, the pitch and some sort of dodgy spot on the pitch. But yeah, definitely should have um, tucked that one away. All right. Two goals apiece in that game. No goals whatsoever in the match at Silhurst Park. That's a tea time Palace-Newcastle. In fact, televised games weren't great until we got to Arsenal-Man United. But uh, that's one goal in four matches now for Newcastle. Eddie has received a lot of praise not least for the incredible defensive solidity of the Magpies now. But despite the strong lineup they've got in terms of goal-scoring talent, one goal in four matches. I think it's interesting when you get a team like Newcastle who sort of come out of nowhere a little bit and, and really challenged at the top, what happens in the second half? Because I think now that they are in those Champions League spots, every team outside of the top six is going to be quite reticent to go at them they're going to sit deep they're going to be hard to break down and I'm, I'm kind of fascinated to see how Newcastle deal with that problem in the second half of the season whether or not they're going to be able to break down teams maybe sitting a little bit lower against them mm. I think there's there's also a sense with Newcastle that of a slight reversion to the mean in that that run of games when they scored five against Brentford I think four against Southampton and three against City it wasn't just this, but Miguel Almiron had went on a run where he was basically scoring with every other shot he was taking and from positions where you wouldn't expect him to score every time. So I think they are missing chances now, no doubt, and Callum Wilson's struggling a little bit. But I think there's also just a sort of reversion to the mean that you aren't going to score three or four goals every week and Almiron isn't going to dance through a defence and finish every week. Overperforming their underlying numbers isn't going to go on. Still, they are up in third in the league and 15 games unbeaten, so probably people aren't overly concerned about that. Coming up in the next few days, well, uh, Fulham take on Spurs in the Premier League on Monday night. On Tuesday, you've got that Southampton-Newcastle League Cup semi-final first leg. There's also a third round replay in the FA Cup between Accrington Stanley and Boreham Wood for the right to face Leeds. 
Bingo. And then on a Wednesday, Nottingham Forest, Man United in the League Cup. Crikey. Thursday, of course, the big footballing event is Totally Football Show returning to analyse all of that and look ahead to the weekend's FA Cup fourth round games. Crikey, do hope you'll be joining us for that, listener. Uh, for now, it's many, many thanks to Jay, to John and to Daniel and to producer Charlie and you. And uh, yeah, have a great week from all of us here. It's goodbye. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Discover bonus video content by searching for The Totally Football Show on YouTube and see the very latest subscription offers at theathletic.com slash totally. The Totally Football Show is an athletic media company production and sponsored by LiveScore Bet. Get the latest football betting odds at livescorebet.com. It's over 18s only. Please bet responsibly and be gambleaware.org. The Athletic.